Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now, I want to go to Chipotle for lunch after this program. And <laughs> uh, I don't know if I should go there or if I should order it online. This is a conundrum that I've started having post-pandemic because so many businesses have migrated to digital so yeah, well so and well, delivery yep. is so fast and efficient now and uh one of the biggest success stories at least on the stock market has been chipotle chipotle mexican grill ticker cmg um, absolutely soaring since releasing second quarter earnings on Tuesday. Stock now at, what, an all-time high, at least 52-week high. All-time high. All-time high. All right, let's bring in the C, uh, the CFO. Jack Hartung joins us um, right now, Chief Financial Officer for Chipotle. Jack, what do you think? Should I order in or should I just walk down 3rd Avenue and pick it up? You know, it is a conundrum. Uh, you know, I had that choice yesterday, and I actually uh, was doing the same thing you did during the pandemic, ordering a lot of digital, a lot of delivery. I decided to go into the restaurant, interact with the team, eat my bowl right there in the restaurant. It was absolutely delicious. So um, I would encourage you to go into the restaurant. All right, Jack, we know, you know, sales have been very strong. Uh, just looking at your most recently uh release results there. I want to talk about the cost side and margins because uh, I know you guys in the restaurant businesses are dealing with two challenges right now. One is rising food cost prices and number two is labor, mm. shortage of labor. Talk to us about those two issues and how they're impacting your margins. Yeah, you know, la labor in the U.S. is a real challenge right now and it's, it's one of, if not the most challenging labor environments I've seen where everybody at the same time needs to hire people. Uh, the economy is opening up. You know, we're opening up our dining rooms. People want to dine in, um, you know, now that the pandemic is, you know, in the late stages. And so everyone's trying to hire at the same time. And at the same time, employees are, they've been cooped up for uh, either working from home or for other reasons cooped up at home. They're really thoughtful and discerning about where they want to work and where they don't want to work. And so we had to take a big move a couple months ago. We announced in May and then we actually enacted in June a significant increase in wages where we went up about 15% from somewhere around $13 plus mm. to average uh, rate of $15. And it's worked really, really well. Since then, our application flow has increased dramatically. Uh, our, you know, the turnover, um, our losing of people to, to other folks who were paying $1 or $2 more um, has slowed down quite a bit. And so it's worked out really, really well for us. Now, we did have to raise prices a bit, um, you know, to fund that 15% increase. We did raise prices about three and a half to 4%. Uh, but we feel like that was a very fair trade. The customers who have commented so far have said they'll gladly pay an extra 30 cents for exactly to, to make sure that people can, you know, earn a living wage. And so we think that went really well. And by the way, the people, when they make more money, they spend more money. And we think that's good for the economy. So, and I, well, there, there's an old Henry Ford uh, lesson for you. My, my thing is, and to be fair, you know, we're relatively wealthy. We have good jobs here. So, um, you know, there are some people in the country that aren't, uh, that aren't able to, but I'm happy to pay a couple dollars more for a meal if I know that the uh, employees are getting paid better and... Usually, I find the customer experience is much better if the employees are getting paid more. Do you? I mean, I know you've got to keep your eye on costs, but do you find that you know your workers are happier to serve food to customers if they if they're getting this, these raises? 
Yeah, 100%. Um, listen, I, I think you can look at the business and look at the labor line as an expense, or you can look at labor as um, those are your people. That's the lifeblood of your restaurant. In our case, we run all, all of our restaurants. We don't franchise any. We have over 90,000 employees. And when we are able to attract great employees who really love to work in a kitchen, they love to serve customers, they love to be part of a team atmosphere, they are 100% better employees. They make the team better and they make the customer experience better. So, you know, the investing in the higher wages, along with other things we've done, like we've invested in offering debt-free degrees to our folks and, you know, we have benefits in terms of physical health benefits and mental health benefits and we're about to launch something to to help from a financial standpoint to make sure that our, our, our teams, our individual employees are able to understand what it means to be financially healthy and make good financial decisions. These are all things that we make those investments in our folks. They make investments back. They want to stay with us and they want to advance their career with us as well. And because we're a growth company, you know, we've got 3000 restaurants, but we know we can have at least 6,000 in the U S and that doesn't even count outside the U S we need lots of, future leaders. And when we hire great people who are really bought into what we're trying to do today, they'll be our future leaders tomorrow. That's kind of where I want to go, Jack, given some of those challenges that uh, uh, you know we're seeing across this economy in terms of labor. What has that done to your store opening uh, strategy here, maybe you know, in the next six to 12 months? Yeah, it really hasn't changed it a bit. You know, We've had a few interruptions here and there where we've had to delay an opening by maybe a week or 10 days, something like that. And that was just so we can make sure that we have the full complement of crew, and they're well-trained. The thing you don't want to do, you don't want to rush an opening. And, you know, if you target a July 1 date and you don't have the team up and ready to go and fully train, it's the right decision to wait until a week or 10 days later. You only get a chance to make a first impression one time with new customers in a new trade area. And so we've had minor delays like that, but we actually just announced uh, yesterday that, that we're going to exceed the early year guidance. We gave guidance of 200 restaurants that we would open this year, we now expect that we will not only hit that number, we will exceed that number. And so our development team, they're doing a great job getting the sites uh, up and running and constructed. And then our HR and our ops folks are doing a great job of making sure that they've got people uh, trained to open those restaurants. All right, Jack. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, market cap is $50 billion right it's, now. Nice round huge. number. Nice yeah. $50 billion. It's, it's a pleasure talking to you. And um, uh, the story has been amazing. I've been following it, you know, for years because we used to have a chipotle here up north and now we have one down south and so i've been eating the food and that makes me <laughs> want to follow the story uh, all the more jack hartung there is a chief financial officer of chipotle after um fantastic earnings the street bids the stock up 1786 to an all-time high this is bloomberg <laughs> Let's get over to David Kudla uh, right now. We've been telling you um, that he's that he's coming on with us, and uh, now he's finally here. So we're happy, all, as always, to talk to um, David. He has a, you know, as I was saying earlier, a big following in terms of uh, the listeners just write into us whenever you come on, David. So um, we're we're always grateful to get your insight. Mainstay Capital Management um, out on uh, out in Michigan there, three and a half billion dollars of assets under management. The, the, the question I've been asking for weeks and I haven't gotten a sufficient answer to is what's going on with rates? Why are we at 124 on the 10 year? Why is the real yield negative one percent? What does it mean to you? Uh, it doesn't mean the same thing to me. Uh, good morning, Matt, and I and I hope the I hope the listeners are writing in good things about me. Yeah, of course, but uh, yeah, 
But it doesn't mean the same thing to me that it means to some people. I think that, you know, uh, there are still people that are that that are looking for signals from the bond market, uh, like the old days. And when I say the old days, I mean before there was so much uh, manipulation of rates by the Federal Reserve, and we could count on the bond market to send us signals about the economy and to send us signals and, and you know, normal reaction functions that, that uh, could help us in our, our investments and, and where we should be going in the markets. But especially in the past 15 months, but even before that, um, I think it says more about the amount of liquidity, the amount of uh, uh, asset purchases, by, not just by our Fed, but by the ECB and other central banks they're just pushing yields down, and it has just distorted um, the the picture so much. If you think about back in the 1980s when we were at five and a half percent inflation, where were bond yields then compared to today? We're sitting here uh, at uh, 1.27, 127 basis points on a 10-year, 192 on a 30-year, with inflation. Last read we had at 5.4%. Um, so it's it's not it's it's not about uh, a reaction to the economy, a reaction to inflation. It's about the Fed. We are just awash with liquidity. The asset purchases, mostly by the Fed, bonds and MBSs, mostly being purchased by the Fed, and and just driving rates down. Hey, David, you know, the, the pandemic, unfortunately, is still with us. We A lot of folks feel like we're on the other side of it, but there's still that Delta variant. How are you guys thinking about it from a stock selection perspective or a sector perspective uh, as it relates to, hey, this thing might be with us maybe a little bit longer? Well, you know, it, it was it was, uh, it was was an easy, I'll just say it was an easy trade last year. And I'm not saying that in hindsight. Uh, you know, we went with the stay-at-home, IT, e-commerce, uh, those trades last year. And I think a lot of investors, a lot of professionals did very well in that environment. And a lot of investors and professionals are frustrated this year with this uh, this constant rotation back and forth between value and growth, whether it's uh, month to month, week to week, or like this week, day to day, just the difference between Monday and Tuesday. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we're looking at that, that uh, we think makes sense for uh, investors in their portfolios for two reasons uh, is, you know, there's the, the this this constant... Uh, argument where the leadership will be between growth and value is to look at defensives. And, you know, defensives, we haven't had a 5% correction in the market, or five, I should say pullback, uh, since last October. We usually get, uh, or the average is at least three of those in a year, mm-hmm. at least uh, one 10% correction in a year. And so there's concern about that. That's where defensive positioning in a portfolio can help. Also, um, so one area is healthcare to look at is, yep. a, is a good one for that. And with these renewed concerns about COVID with the Delta variant, uh, one area we like in particular is uh, is medical devices, medical technology, and devices. Because as we saw, uh, and you've been reporting on the show, we our seven day average in cases in this country had gotten down at the end of June to about eleven thousand and. You know, we've ramped back up to over forty thousand with the uh, with the Delta variant. You, I want, I was wondering because you're in um, in, in Michigan near Detroit, right? Um, just north of Royal Oak there, and you have about three and a half billion in assets under management. But your 
that one of the top 100 independent financial advisors for years and years um, at Barron's. Uh, Forbes rates you one of the top 100 wealth advisors. You went to Stanford and did all of everything that the super smart um, Wall Street guys need to do, but you're not on Wall Street. What What's business like there? Is it any different? Are your clients calling in from here or do you have a, a local base? So we have, I mean, we really consider ourselves a national advisor. We have we have clients in 47 states and uh, 12 other countries uh, because of people, you know, business is global these days. So we have investors that, that move around the country or, or from around the country and move around the world. Uh, certainly we have a lot here in Michigan, uh, a lot of clients that, that, that are in the auto industry. Um, so uh, we do, yep. I mean, but, but certainly represent, uh, you know, Clients global across business. the entire country, yeah. yeah, and global business. All right, David, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your insight. We appreciate your time. David Kudla, founder, CEO, and chief investment strategist for Mainstay Capital. We should right go now. there. You know, we should, we go, should go there, there at some point I'll because go. there's Boom. obviously a lot of people for us to interview, and then yep. we could get David and do a roundtable with we'll all We'll do an auto thing. CEOs. Yeah. We'll tie it in. We are going to talk stocks right now. We have got the senior U.S. equity strategist from UBS Global Wealth Management, Nadia Lovell, with us. And uh, uh, what a market. I mean, where do we begin, Nadia? Um, it, it's been such an incredible run. I was reading about a really successful hedge fund manager this morning that was up 7% year to date. And I thought, well, <laughs> I would rather just be in the S&P 500 and double that return. Does this continue? Do we continue to hit new highs? Yes, we think that you would continue to hit new highs from here. Our expectation is that the S&P 500 will reach 4,500 by year end. And what's really going to drive that is strong economic growth driven by the consumer and earnings upside. We're already seeing that this week during earnings season, that earnings is beaten to the upside. We look for that to continue. That's kind of where I wanted to go, Nadia. We're just kind of getting into the meat of the earnings season here, and I guess it's all important really about the guidance here because a lot of folks have some valuation worries and and feel like you know a lot of these stocks a lot of this market needs to earn its way into the multiple kind of big picture what are you looking for earnings and, and growth and that type of thing absolutely so as you know so far about 20 percent of the S&P companies have reported. And for a quarter, we are actually looking for earnings to grow about 80% year over year. And that's higher than where consensus is. Consensus coming into the season was at about 60%. Uh, this season, unlike last season, we are seeing companies awarded for those feats. And so when we look out for the full year for 2021, we expect expect earnings to grow over 40%. That's above where consensus is. And we expect some of that momentum to continue into 2022. Obviously, the growth rate will moderate in 2022 because we're just coming off of a higher base. But we still look for healthy earnings growth in 2022 of about 10%. So what do you think when, uh, when people start talking about growth fears? A lot of people were attributing low rates that we're seeing to concerns that um, we're not going to get a lot of growth. I think some uh, JP Morgan analysts said, even though they expect three and a half percent growth over the next 12 months, uh, the bond market is indicating 0.5 percent. 
yes, there's a disconnect in the bond market, but some of that um, is technical in nature. Uh, our view is the last month that you've seen this pullback in, in yield and the, and the flattening of the yield curve has to do with some technical factors. We think most of that is behind us, and so we look for the 10-year to start to trend back up higher. Our target for year-end is 2%. And so we expect that the curve to steepen, and that should be a positive. We don't think that we are necessarily at peak growth. We might hit peak growth in Q3. However, we do think that the economy will remain above trend growth, and that's what's important uh, for markets. All right, Donna, given all that backdrop, uh, what are some of the sectors uh, that you guys at UBS are focusing on right now? You know, we continue to like um, value over growth, and uh, we have a pro-cyclical tilt in our sector preferences. So we favor consumer discretionary energy, financials, and industrials. I know that value has lagged over the last month or so due to the fall in uh, interest rates and a flattening of curve. But we think, as I said, some of that will reverse in coming months, and that should favor value, particularly financials, as we know, is a larger segment in value. And you believe inflation is transitory. I think that's uh, consensus on the street and probably among the smartest economists in the world as well. However, I continue to hear from CEOs, and I don't know if they're, in a sense, talking their book, but um, from Stellantis to uh, Unilever, input costs mm -hmm. to Siemens, input costs are higher and they're passing those price increases on to their con customers. We are in the camp that we think the inflation will be transitory. However, it will take a few months for us to get past those high spikes in inflation. Uh, we think that we get there in the fall. But I think that what's important for the markets and companies is, as you noted, the ability of companies to pass on those higher costs to consumers. We're seeing that happen broad-based in the S&P 500 to be able to protect margins. And so from a market standpoint, we're not concerned about the increase in inflation. We think it will, it will subside as we head into the back half of the year. And we think that companies will continue to protect their margins. And more importantly, you want to also focus on companies that have pricing powers, that have um, consumers that be able to absorb some of these costs. Got it. Nadia, thanks so much for joining us. Nadia Lovell there, Senior U.S. Equity Strategist at UBS Global Wealth Management. All right, Matt, it seems like the whole world's going to electric vehicles. we got Mercedes-Benz saying they're going to spend $47 billion on their EV uh, business over the next decade. I, I'm, what happens to internal combustion engines? Is that going to be an extinct relic at some point? It's I mean, something I spend a lot of time. You know what? I spend a lot of time thinking about that and talking about it with Barry Ritholtz. Do we have him on today? I think we can do that. I think we have him at the end, yeah. Yeah, cool. He's pulling okay. up the rear. All right, yeah. let's chat with Michael Dean. He's an expert on all this stuff. He's the auto analyst covering all the European autos for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based in London. Uh, he's one of my faves over there. So, Michael, this sounds big to me that Mercedes is saying, all right, we're putting all our chips in here uh, on these EVs. Tell us how big this is. Yes, so they've doubled their target for XEVs, which, which are plug-ins, so includes hybrids by 2025 to 50% of the sales mix. They were at 25%, but now they're saying they want to go 100% by 2030. Now, there is a caveat. It depends on the markets. And I don't know about you, but I don't think the U.S. market is going to go 100% by 2030. But it's a very encouraging sign, and it shows they're fully committed to electric vehicles. It's, it, to, to me, I've wondered why um, none of the big car makers has already 
done this. And I know Volkswagen kind of did, but I mean five years ago. You know, when I drove a Tesla for the first time in 2010 with uh, Jason Harper from Road and Track, I was like, damn, this is awesome. Um, and I but there's, under- no, there's no roar of the engine. So there, what, do you, I know. What, what, do you, what are you going to do with your Lamborghini and your, or your Lambo when you get well, back here? I mean, if I have a Lamborghini, um, I would probably have another car too. So, <laughs> But uh, Michael, why didn't any big car maker get this idea before the pandemic? Well, they certainly didn't take Tesla seriously for many years. It wasn't until 2017. And part of that is because electric vehicles don't make any money. You can see from Tesla, the majority of their profits come from selling regulatory credits. And that's still the case. But because they're scaling up and because they see battery costs going to below $100 per kilowatt hour by 2025, they they can see those profits on the horizon. And so Daimler now saying that 50% of their sales will be electric. They're still sticking to their double digit margin targets. So that is encouraging. So, Michael, just give us a sense of kind of the driving public in Europe. What's the embrace of EVs? Because here in the U.S., it's 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 coming. But until again, you put a Ford F one fifty fully uh, EV, you know, electrified. I'm not sure this market's going to move that much. What's it like in Europe? Yeah, it's still modest. So it's about fifteen percent market share for plug-ins. So that's split evenly. And that's really been pushed by government incentives. So in Germany, you can get nine and a half thousand euros off a, a plug-in car. Globally, if you look at sort of BMW and Mercedes, their market share of battery electric vehicles is only 3%. Um, so it's 3% battery electric, 10% um, plug-in in total. And in Europe, it's a, probably double the market share glo- um, that it is globally. It does seem like... So it's picking up. It does seem like there's somehow more prestige for a fully battery electric vehicle, and I've not understood this either. If I have the option and the means I'd much rather have what BMW called a range extender, right? I'd much rather have a sweet electric vehicle that also has a little triple in it, right? Why, why is that not so popular? Well, um, well, firstly, from a market's perspective, um, they see hybrids as a sort of interim technology. And if you look at Tesla, it's getting the valuation because it's pure electric. If you look what's happened to Volkswagen this year, because they've given a battery electric target, um, out to 2030, it, it's got some tech recognition. So that's why other companies want to push um, the battery electric angle more um, than, than hybrids. But from a consumer perspective, yes, um, because um, th- there's range anxiety, there's, there's not a, uh, enough charging points, a hybrid is a much better option in the, in the short term. So, Michael, that's what, where I want to go is to the charging stations. It seems like there's that could be a little kink in this rollout of the electrified a vehicle plant who does that and what's what's the play there yeah so so the companies themselves are putting money in they need the governments to invest um there's collaborations with the um oil companies as well um so so they're certainly investing in in sort of recharging points but um you're right uh, there's still very few of them uh, and it's going to take a huge investment to get to where they want to be especially if if governments um, and the EU wants to, um, you know, achieve their emission targets out to 2030, where they're looking for another 50% reduction in CO2 per kilometer for their cars um, by that time. I just can't, I can't understand why it's taking so long. And I've asked Ben Burden um, this and and other oil majors, like in Germany, when you're driving the Autobahn, you, you see every few kilometers, either a shell or an Aral. Right. Why not? spend the next six months putting charging stations at each one. You know, you, 
you can do it. We have the technology. I, I feel like they're pushing back a little bit against this. Yeah, they are expensive, though. So a fast charging point is about $40,000. So you need quite a few of them. And, and it's no good going to a petrol station which has charging points, whereas a petrol station might take you five minutes to refill. What if there's a queue um, at a charging point and it's going to take 20, 30 mm. minutes to recharge? You know, that's quite a long stay. So you can see the attraction still of the combustion engine. For sure, car. for sure. But for the gas stations, like if I've got you for 30 minutes, <laughs> I could sell you a lot of stuff. I Exactly. You know, I think Tesla's, that, Tesla's doing that, right? That's very true. That's very true that there is a different angle there, but people want convenience as well. So, you know, like the Porsche Taycan, it's expensive, but you can recharge the vehicle to 80% uh, in 15 minutes. And this technology will be rolled out to other cars, I think, probably over the next three or four years. It's, All right. a, it's a hot car. But it's 200 grand for the... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. All right. So, Michael, talk to us. Just give us an update on just production for the European companies. Are they still... Suffering from a lack of chips, is this can continue to be an issue for the yeah. remainder of the year? It's interesting. So the first half numbers, um, most of the companies are pre-released, so much better than expected. We had that from Mercedes yesterday. Um, Volkswagen and BMW still to release. But the outlook um, from uh, Mercedes was that they're not going to meet their sales expectations. So instead of having significantly higher sales, they're just going to be at the prior level. They're blaming... Um, uh, semiconductor shortages, and, and that is an issue. But also, if you look at Europe, uh, the underlying demand for autos in Europe is still quite weak. Although it's up 15% in the first half, it's still 25% below that of 2019. So I think it's maybe a combination of uncertainty over demand, but also, you know, semiconductors is, is an issue, and it continues to be an issue in the second half. Hey, Michael, just got 30 seconds here. Why did Volkswagen do the Remac deal with Bugatti? What, does that, what, what value does that add for Herbert Diess? Well, I just think that they want to take the lead in terms of electric supercars, and they can do that with Rimac and Bugatti, and it also gives Porsche the technology in the future on the EV side, I think. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.